Hello and welcome to the Trauma Resonance Resilience podcast with no slick beginnings, no funky tunes, just me and my guest today for our live webinar. And I'm really excited because I open up every conversation with I'm really excited because I, I wake up really excited. <laughs> I don't excited. feel very special now. <laughs> but, well, no, I'm just really excited like always. So you will feel special in a minute because this is a bit of an introduction. An internationally respected face of child and adolescent mental health who works tirelessly to be the change that she wants to see. She's a prolific keynote speaker, lecturer, trainer and author. She develops and shares practical evidence-informed approaches to promoting mental health. Um, she has a PhD in child mental health from the Institute of Psychiatry, is the author of many books. I'm getting a bit bored now. She lives yeah. in South <laughs> London with her two daughters, husband, mother-in-law and three dogs. She's a keen climber. She, look, she's just all round amazing. Please welcome Perky <laughs> Nightsmith. The crowd goes wild. <laughs> oh, 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 I can make the crowd go wild before you start, actually. This is something that I've been doing on my, um, my training when I felt that somebody needs it. And I think it's really, really important. So important, in fact, that I ought to have had it at the ready just before we started. <laughs> oh, see, now I feel special. Yeah. Thank you. Totally special. So, Pookie, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I, can I ask something really cheeky? I know that like you're interviewing me, but I'm really keen, obviously, to share this with with my people too. And um, we, like, just in a nutshell, how do you introduce yourself? Oh my goodness! How do I introduce myself? It's really difficult because I think for a number of reasons. One is I'm fifty, so I've been on the planet. For, for a few years now which means I've lived a life the other complication and I guess this is the same challenge that you have actually is how you bring together the personal professional and academic in a nutshell mm. so that people understand how to locate you yeah um so I'll try and keep it simple um and say Lisa Cherry trainer speaker um, and author on trauma recovery and resilience I like to speak in threes um and then save the big kind of introductions for training because yeah it's really difficult isn't it you just have to hope that people follow you and people come at your work from many different angles and understand that human beings are very complex we are not a job title no. we are a magnitude of experiences but great question, Pookie. Right, now it's my turn. So <laughs> I'm going to keep score because I totally want to ask some questions too. But go on. Yeah, go on. Do you? Oh, well, this is very lovely. Well, do you know what? Before we get going, I'd really like people to just pop in the chat box where in the country they are, because I like to always, you know, make sure I can say as many names as possible and get people and see how many people. You know where the places are, because I'm rubbish at geography. Do you know how many times I've got myself in a pickle? Someone going, could you come and present at our conference in wherever? And I'm like, yeah, I'd totally love to. And I'm like, that's seven hours away. And I thought it was down the road. I mean, I'm, I'm really up for it, but yeah, my diary. Yeah. I love the Shetlands. Yeah, <laughs> so we've got Malmesbury, <laughs> Northern Ireland, Reading, E17, Whitby, Whitby, North Yorkshire, Staines, Preston, Glasgow, Reading, Liverpool, Lincolnshire, Malaysia, Bolton, Liverpool, Newcastle. <laughs> I just like a gin and a fag like. If you saw my joke earlier, if you didn't see my joke earlier, then that won't mean anything. Uh, Bristol, it's a bit Cornwall. Really, to be honest, Lisa, isn't it? I know that could come across really badly. It's because I told a joke about something earlier. Now I feel really terrible. So, northeast London, Surrey, Edinburgh. So we've got really such an eclectic mix here, Pookie. Which is... so the, the so the the post lockdown holiday. I mean, training. We're going to go and deliver Malaysia. That's um, seems important to me that we would visit Malaysia face to face because this is important the virtual thing. But I think um, yeah, Malaysia. There, that's probably the place that most needs us, wouldn't you say, Lisa? I think that every country carries its own ancestral traumas and histories um, and culturally specific needs for support and connection uh, globally. Mm. It's a global conversation, isn't it? 
it is a global conversation, but I'd love to go to Malaysia. <laughs> Would you? Nicholas, have... she's going to carry the bags, apparently. Oh, fantastic. Oh, there we go. Nicholas carrying your bags. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I'm interested. Oh, and someone's put a question up below. So please do use the q and I won't be answering them until about 22.11. I'll have a look. So if you've got any direct questions, pop them in uh, so that we can have some space to do some Oh, questions. my friend Rachel Morris is here. Hi, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> She's in Surrey. So Rachel also um, is um, a gold medal, willing, gold medal winning Paralympian. She's one of the most awesome people I know, but also just my friend. So. Oh, well, she sounds like she'd be good on my podcast. She, oh, she totally would. Yeah. Yeah. You've Brilliant. got to have her on. You see, She's amazing. We, just, we do it all this morning. We'll do it all this morning. So Pookie, what was sort of, I was drawn to about speaking to you. I think I'm very fascinated with um, the idea of a late diagnosis to autism. I think that's something that, um, I'd be really interested in us talking about and also your work very much I would say there's an overlap in some of the things that we do but where you're coming from is probably um, rooted in a different space than mine not least because you have your background in psychiatry etc so and I'm also god I'm so intrigued by your bookshelf what on earth is going i want to show you my chaos i'm not showing you my bookshelf because you'd just be like that's just wrong i'll come around and sort it out for you you'll never find anything <laughs> unless you like color <laughs> for anyone listening on the podcast rather than watching pookie's bookshelves are arranged in color yeah yeah yeah, they are. So, so I actually did record a video about this recently. So I get asked about it a lot. And uh, on my uh, YouTube channel, I tend to get more comments about the colour order of my books and my dog, who will make the occasional appearance than I do about any of my content, which is um, kind of lovely, um, sort of deeply insulting in some ways. A bit like the, I had someone once come up to me after I'd given a presentation. Went, Have you ever considered a career in stand up? <laughs> that totally wasn't the vibe I was going for at all no but it's a great point actually when we're talking about so much deep stuff all the time being able to be funny to yeah. it's one of the things I miss about being in the room because yeah. I stare at a screen now like everybody else so I have to find myself funny which I'm not too bad at I have to say but it's much nicer if you're looking around a room and other people also find you funny because this stuff's heavy. And if we can't find a way to loosen up our nervous systems through humor, then it makes it a much more challenging conversation. It does. No, it does. And I think there's something there that I, I try and always see the humor in what I'm doing and to laugh at myself as well. Um, um, in, in a nice way but I think sometimes people get a bit worried about humor when it comes to these deep and difficult topics because it might be offensive or inappropriate somehow and um, I think usually you can get away with it more when you know you're you're someone who suffers from the thing that you're joking about um, and luckily I've got so many different diagnoses so I, I can crack a joke on on most things really and uh, get away with it I think but no I I find humor to be a really important way of connecting with people and particularly when we're talking about really tricky stuff like suicide say and people are really scared to talk about it but if actually you can connect in a human way and find a little bit of humor there um and it's obviously not a very funny topic, but it, 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 I think it breaks the ice a bit and it makes it just a little bit less awkward, makes it okay to begin to talk about. But I don't ever really set out to be funny. I, mainly it's just that because I don't, um, I don't script what I say um, and I tend to just go with the flow in the room and, and I just sometimes find often it will be that I've just misspoken and I've said something that's just so wholly inappropriate and like a pun that's just really wrong uh, or something like that. And I, I'll just end up laughing at myself. And I think, well, either you leave it there or you just you, you find the humour in what you're doing, don't you? You laugh at yourself and everyone laughs with you. And yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's an interesting place that you started in how do we bring that personal, professional, academic person 360 into a space that feels accessible for other people? Yeah. I mean, tell me a bit about that, where you sit with that and what that Ooh. looks like for you. That's a really big question, but a really important one. So, and it's actually quite a journey I've been on myself. So, 
I used to just work in the field of mental health and it had nothing to do with, it was inspired by my own history of mental health issues, but I was kind of in the closet, if you like, with my issues, some of which hadn't been diagnosed at that point, um, some of which I was maybe sort of deeply ashamed of actually, um, or just not ready to share with the world because you can talk about your lived experience and reflect on the past and that's quite safe and people like that and they're like an inspirational story of, oh, look, and then look how well she's doing now. Living experience though, which is kind of where I'm at now what's and all um, is a lot less comfortable and I could do the whole lived experience thing and kind of make reference to a past and I'd moved on and was recovered and that was fine for a long time um, and then um, it all went to porridge in my 30s and I got really ill and I found myself sort of trying to live my life be a professional working in the field of mental health whilst completely unable to cope and uh, often at risk of dying either by suicide or um, as a result of starvation through anorexia and just generally things were pretty tough and I found myself thinking I literally wrote the book on self-harm and eating disorders and here I am in hospital um, you know having wounds seen to and unable to eat and how can anyone possibly respect me when I can't follow my own advice and guidance and I had a big kind of crisis of confidence about it um, but I have uh, my best friend, Joe. Um, anyone who kind of follows me will know about Joe. Joe is the most amazing friend. And he used to be my boss um, and is a very close friend of mine. And he took me to task and he said, you inspire so many people and you're a role model, but you're not living authentically um, because you're hiding your own story. And people will learn a lot more from you if you're just open and honest and true. And yeah, it's going to be hard and not everyone's going to accept it. Um, but you can change how people see not just you, but mental health generally, and you can change the conversation there. You've got the power to do that, do it. Um, and it was a big challenge and really hard because I was so ashamed of the mess I was. Um, and I worried that the professional credibility I'd built up um, by that point um, insofar as it was that it would just go because how can you stand on a stage or whether it's virtual or literal how can you stand on a stage and teach people about something when you can't even hold your own stuff together but what I found was I was completely wrong and that being open and honest and authentic in my struggles day to day um, and just yeah allowing myself to be myself has been the best career move that I've ever made um, both in terms of kind of yeah success in whatever way you might measure it um but also in terms of my ability to impact and make a difference and i reach people on a really different level now so i was always able to you know the thing i i pride myself on is my communication and like you lisa i think we basically do slightly different things but the same thing we take really complicated concepts and we try really hard to allow all the people who are trying to manage this stuff every day to make a difference with those ideas and and that's what i've always prided myself on doing and i could always communicate those things well but now i share that i'm not just communicating them i'm doing them i'm living them um and yeah that often when i'm working through a new approach to i don't know managing anxiety say i'm able to share it with real belief because it's probably the thing i was doing that morning that meant i was able to leave the house and yeah so that was it. That was a long and rambling answer, wasn't it? But yeah, so yeah. That, yeah. And full of, full, of, full of content. I mean, you know, you describe, first of all, don't we all just love Joe? All of us in no. the room, we're just going, Joe, we love him. Um, but also, if we don't learn to tell our story, our story will tell us, which you just described so beautifully. And I love the distinction you made between lived and living. Yeah. experience and like you I worked in the profession in an inauthentic way because I was so busy trying not to deal with it and was not around enough Joes yeah. to support me in being open and honest about my wounds yeah and and I you know I think that's something that we really need to unpick how we make workplaces safe for people to bring their wounds to work in a conscious way rather than subconsciously, which of course is not going to make us the best practitioners. No. Um, and that's, so, that's hard yeah. though. That is hard, isn't it? Because it's partly, as you say, about making the workplace safe, but it's partly about just changing the conversation generally. I mean, I am really lucky in that I 
I'm, I've got such a huge network of people around me and granted some of the things I've said and done and the way that I am doesn't land perfectly with everyone, but where it doesn't lend itself to either progressing in a particular role or getting on with certain people, actually I, I, I can move on and work somewhere else, but lots of people aren't in that situation that if they were open and honest about stuff that's going on with them, that it might mean they're no longer able to do the work or be with the people that mean that they can put food on the table. And yeah, so I, I, I come, I, I fully understand that I come from a place of great privilege here. And I hope that, you know, the work that people like yourself and I do will mean that more people are able to be more authentic. But I do understand it's, it's not, it's not just as easy as wanting it. No, it's a messy space. All of this is a mess because it's full of humans and all the, all the mess that humans bring. Um, and I guess what you're talking about is about how you, you know, Joe was able to see that place and sit in that place with you before you were able to sit in that place with yourself. And that's a gift. That's why you speak so highly of him because that's, that's a huge gift. And isn't it, isn't it the gift that we all want that we, that we are able not just to go into that murky space with other people, but we do so having been and sat in that murky space with ourselves. um, Yeah. Harnessing. And I think the thing that he showed me and why it mattered so much, because he wasn't a close friend before all this, he was my boss and we, I I had huge respect to him, but he, he wasn't, he wasn't a close friend. We made friends through him repeatedly saving my life and enabling me to keep finding a way forwards. Um, But he stepped up in a really, yeah, authentic and honest way, um, but also just showed completely unconditional care. I mean, the stuff I put Joe through, we were chatting about it just a couple of nights ago because now I'm slightly further removed from that particularly dark kind of time and I'm able to stop. And I don't remember it all because I, I, I do, you know, I dissociate and, and a lot of it is, yeah, I don't remember the ins and outs, but there's moments I can remember, you know, a particular moment when I was beginning to learn to cry and uh, doing that quite epically with Joe in the library, uh, the British library, very public space. And he just sat there and sat with me, sat through it, didn't didn't run from that distress, ran towards it, asked more questions, allowed more space for me to think and cry. And um, it was yeah he did that kind of thing a lot and 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 also you know stuff around food when i was learning to eat again he would just sit with me for however long it took for me to eat if i was trying a new food i would often do it with him and um yeah he would just sit there and it was really messy and uncomfortable and so public often you know we'd be in mcdonald's eating mcflurry and he'd just sit there with that pain and just just you know we and we joke about it some and that's the thing again finding the humor he'd often say afterwards he'd be like you know people must think i'm the most horrible boyfriend or something because you know when people <laughs> wonder what story people would be telling um about what was going on in this conversation why this man was just kind of sat there and i'd be there crying into my mcflurry um and you wonder what the stories were that people tell and he never let anything about what anyone else might think or say or do to impact on anything he did as a friend and so yeah it's really powerful I just love that it was in the British Library. There's something, my inner diva just kind of loves that. If you're going to do that, then let's pick a really beautiful piece of architecture to go and kind of do that in. I think that's stunning. Surrounded by all those books that would not have been colour-coded, of course. I know, right? (laughs) So tell tell me how you ended up getting a late diagnosis of autism. What was that journey like? That journey. So I was um, in hospital, hospitalised with anorexia, um, not getting any better, um, getting actively worse, despite the fact that I was having really good, really intensive care, but I was completely unable to engage um, with the treatment at all. Um, was going backwards rather than forwards. Everything felt really, really rather hopeless. Um, And I had a really good team around me who were trying really hard, but it seemed like the more that we tried, the the worse things seemed to get, the more entrenched I became, the ill I got. Um, And I had a psychologist and a psychiatrist who were working with me alongside the the rest of the team. Um, And it was when the the psychologist, my therapist, I'd been working with by that time for a while, um, but he and my psychiatrist, essentially they, they kind of put it out there as, this this might be this might be what's going on and um they they kind of mused that perhaps this was uh, a part of the issue and might help us to unlock more helpful forms of treatment for me um and so we yeah we explored it together um and found that when 
once I got that diagnosis, which I don't, to be honest, remember huge amounts about because I was in very intensive, like 24 seven treatment under 24 hour watch because I was a suicide risk and all those things. It was a very difficult sort of time. And bluntly, when you're in that sort of situation, you're spending your whole time like being involved in various kind of conversations around whatever it is, diagnosis or treatment. And it's all a bit of a blur. Um, but the, the diagnosis came about essentially because the team around me recognized that this might be the case. And then overnight, once we then, um, thought this might be the appropriate route then I began to be treated as if um, autistic and we just found that literally overnight things began to change so things like um, all of the therapy and this is quite common with eating disorders all the therapy was group therapy um, which I just can't engage with at all um, and as soon as I was told well okay you, you don't need to do group therapy but the skills are really important so we'll do that one-to-one -one. Um, and instantly I went from not being able to engage and being in complete panic in group therapy to actually being able to work one-to-one -one with someone I built up a really good trust and rapport with and begin to look at those skills and then begin to apply them. Um, other things like um, I had an issue around at one point I'd everything had become literally everything had become a fear food there was one thing I could consume um, and I could only consume that in one flavor as a liquid like one of those kind of supplements and uh, they didn't have the the right flavor at one point so they were going to um, force feed me but um, when we reflected on what happened there uh, through the lens of autism um, and understood that actually the, f the flavor really mattered to me and there were different reasons why that mattered it wasn't just an anorexia control thing that was uh, an autism thing um, we looked at it through a different lens and it meant I was able to build and repair some of the bridges that had been quite broken with some of my treatment team um, yeah but the, the main thing was I, I think the main thing for me at that moment when I got that diagnosis actually was it was both a revelation um I felt completely stupid Lisa I'd worked with yeah, autism I knew quite a lot about autism and I'd worked in in, in in the field and worked with autistic people and those who work with and care for them for years and it had never occurred to me that this might be uh, my story um but as soon as I got that diagnosis and began to think about it I was a bit like obviously so much about myself made sense um, and it meant that I was able to begin to think about well how do I look after myself better what does self-care look like and how do I manage this thing called life um, and and so it was very really helpful springboard but it was also quite crushing because at this point although there were many times when I didn't want to go on and I couldn't imagine wanting to ever live life again at that time, there was a tiny part of me that had held on and I had amazing people around me. And I knew that if only I could just get hold of the end of the rope, that there was a life waiting for me. But of course I'd imagined what that life might look like one day. And then suddenly I got this diagnosis that said, no, no, your life's never going to look like that because actually some of these issues that you're facing, you'll recover from, you're not going to recover from autism. You're just like that. That's you. That's fundamentally who you are. So these dreams that one day I'll be like, enjoy throwing dinner parties with all my friends, that's never going to happen. And actually I've come to a peace with that now, but at the time it was, yeah, I don't know. I had to reimagine the future, I guess. Um, yeah. And reimagine. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. And I think really highlights how important language is how important relationships are, all the stuff that we talk about in our work, you know, what you've just described is really what that, what does that look like? You know, and that's one of the things, I don't know if you find this, but talking about relationships a lot in, prof in professional settings, it occurs to me that when we don't break down what that actually looks like, yeah, it's very difficult for people perhaps who've had relationships with ease or relationships through attachment. It's very difficult to um, support people in really understanding what it takes to build the kind of relationships that make a difference with people who potentially have found relationships very difficult or have had severed attachments. So breaking down what that means is where the personal becomes so important because yeah. you're describing there the role of Joe, you're describing the team that was working around you. They were also going through their light bulb moments and you had to be patient with them. You had to be patient with them as they fathomed, you know, how to make sense of you when you were not in a space that was making sense of you at the time. Yeah. It's big, it's big work, isn't it? It, yeah, I mean, it was a, uh, yeah, it, 
yeah big work big work um but it has been it's been a real gift actually and it has helped my understanding and it has meant that i've got a really clear understanding i'm not always able to do it 100 percent brilliantly but i have got a really clear understanding of the things that i do find challenging and i know why now um and what i need to do in order to look after myself better so staying well getting well was really hard but staying well is is hard but i'm much more able to manage it and i know it, it you know lots of people have different feelings about labels but actually being able to go somewhere and say look i'm autistic so i need you to do this to help me please i've never yet had a situation where someone said no in just the same way that you know i said before so rachel's on the call so rachel um has no legs so obviously when she goes places then sometimes we need to m make kind of uh amendments so that she's able to access and actually our needs are completely different but it's kind of the same and it's not the same but you know what i mean i basically i need me i need people to meet me where i am and in order for me to do a good job for them they need to make allowances um and for me that might look like i need a room to go off separately and eat my lunch um but for rachel it's i need a ramp to get in and you need to make sure that i can use my wheelchair safely on your stage it's different needs but actually it's all about us being able to just be seen as ourselves and people around us making um yeah the the, the choices that we need so that they can yeah help us to be ourselves i don't know i'm not explaining that well but yeah well I, I think you are and i think what you're highlighting is actually don't we all just need to be met with where we are mm. you know in that relational moment aren't we all hoping that someone is curious enough to get to know us a bit better or to figure something out or you know it's that whole as well, something slightly different, but I was thinking about the, um, you know, what sits behind the behavior. So if you don't have those needs met, mm -hmm. uh, and I equally can pull out of the bag a million of examples for myself, mm -hmm. but just to stay with that, if you don't have those needs met, then your behavior is going to let people know that you're struggling. You know, some, something that you do will yeah. alert someone who's curious actually she's struggling here um and that's what we're really trying to harness in professional settings isn't it it's that curiosity it's that not taking people personally it's looking behind the behavior it's having an ability to think about what actually is this person struggling with because i'm sure it's not all about me you know so um yeah, so we've got some nice stuff here. So Rachel's saying very well explained, good analogy, and Nicola's talking about kind curiosity and someone's sharing that that they didn't have um, a good approach in a specialist centre uh, for an eating disorder um, and they didn't approach anorexia and autism in a different way to those not on the spectrum in the way that you described. And I guess that leads us into a little bit of system trauma doesn't it you know what happens yeah. when systems and organizations actually add to the harm yeah indeed i think just i, I it would be remiss of me not to just note at that point for uh, the the person who mentioned that that um i'm involved with a project called the peace pathway at the moment which is um a, a funded project at the maudsley where we're developing um a, a clinical pathway for people who've got comorbid autism and anorexia um and using patient experience to really develop that pathway because we are understanding that there's a massive um there's massive under diagnosis of autism in girls generally and in uh, girls with eating like it, it's really it's, it's much more commonly comorbid than we might think um, and the treatment does need to be different and there's lots that we can do quite simply that makes a massive difference um, and we are working really hard to reach as far and, and as wide as we can with the outcomes of that project as fast as we can it's not as fast as we'd like because we'd like it to be done you know 10 years ago um, but um, yeah and I'm, I'm really hot, sorry to hear that experience and we're hearing awful, so many awful stories but we are trying to make change happen as fast as we can um, yeah. but but sorry your question was a different one around system trauma yeah i i think it and, and that can be i think when people have bad experiences of treatment it no matter whether it's big or small actually those things can make a real difference and it's a bit like i always teach people if um they work with youngsters and it's likely that that young person might need to be referred to the gp to access treatment which is a common pathway in for example and i always have to prepare people for the fact that 
um, when you're going to the GP, you've got to do your research, make sure you talk to the right person in the practice. You've got to work out what you're going to say, what you're trying to get out of that appointment. But you've also got to prepare yourself for the fact the appointment might not go how you want and you might get knocked back. Um, and we've got to be quite resilient. And whether it's you going for yourself or you're supporting someone, you have to be prepared that you might not get the outcome that you want and need. And going in knowing that I think helps. Um, but what can happen if we're not prepared for that is that it makes us feel really unheard and really unvalidated and makes us think that, well, maybe I don't deserve help. And particularly with mental health issues, um, if you go and, and someone doesn't hear when you ask for help, it's, it's really hard to ask again often. Um, and I think that that can be really challenging. And I've certainly had some really difficult knockbacks where I've been very lucky um, to have very brilliant people around me and that kind of inner determination to change the system. So when I've presented with self-harm, I've been met with amazing kindness and care in some places, but I've also been met with just the most amazing disregard and disrespect that is very difficult to manage, very, very difficult. And if I hadn't have had, my husband's been amazing. You know, there's been times where I've gone and I've been so upset by the treatment I've received that I just don't want to go back. And he's, he's helped me and stood with me whilst I then have gone back and got the treatment needed at the time. Um, mm -hmm. And the thing is, I wonder then, well, and there is a fully fledged adult who's got a really good understanding of the system, really good contacts, really able to go to other places and a husband right by my side all the time, always through everything. What if I was a scared 13 year old kid and I rocked up and I got that treatment? I probably would never ask for help from anyone again, ever. Um, and I think that there's, I mean, you know, staying with the theme of curiosity. Um, I mean, what you're describing to me is what I've worked with, what I see in the training room is this complete mix of sheer brilliance empathy, love, nurture, passion, right next to a disregard of a person's pain, the journey that, that got them to that place yeah. and the potential for them after that place. And I'm always really curious about that mix of people because it's not, it's across every sector. I work across every sector and I think mm. you're certainly move, moving to work across every sector as well. If not already, I can't remember what we said, but when you are going into every single sector and it is like that, it's really interesting to me what brings people into the work. If you don't have that complete passion for other humans and for, you know, there's so many other jobs you could do if, if mm. being passionate about creating the right environment for the flower to bloom next to you as a flower, you know, if you don't have that, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that. But do you think there's a problem sometimes, Lisa, where maybe people go in with the best intentions and either time passes or things change or just the pressures on them are such? So maybe you work in a school and you do or, or you might work in the child and adolescent mental health service and you really care about every child that comes through your door but actually you've got to get through so many in a day and the need's so high and it's beyond what you feel actually trained to manage and maybe you've got your own unresolved stuff going there and so you can't be kind of who i don't know what what, what, what your thoughts are on that where maybe the, the situation makes it hard for you to be the person that that someone might need because of time or money or yeah I'm, I'm totally down with that um and i'm very fascinated and interested in how organizations don't necessarily create the best environments for people to work in to be the best that they can be which is why one of the courses i've been doing isn't about just self-care it's about organizational care and it's about collective care how do we look after each other and how do we make sure that our organization is fit for purpose mm -hmm. um and I guess, you know, I guess there is still, I, I've met people who work in the most awful situations. And I suppose, I suppose to be fair, um, they either leave or they fight that system themselves, which is incredibly exhausting yeah. on top of the work that you have to do. Um, so, yeah, I, I hear that. But I also think that if you are coming to a service, you deserve the best that, that you can get. And, you know, having worked as a professional with unresolved issues um, that didn't feel unresolved because I was in therapy and I thought I was doing fine, 
but I, I wasn't able to be that 360 person we were talking about, um, then I feel very strongly that we have to make sure that organizations have good mentors, they have good clinical practice available, and that those mechanisms are in place. Um, yeah. And if you could go back to that, you know, if you could go and talk to your former self before you kind of got that 360 thing going on, right, then what do you think you could have sort of told yourself or advised yourself? And do you think you, the past you, would have been ready and able to listen and act on that? Um, I think I was very open to therapeutic and clinical work because, uh, because my own story is that I, I had a, a pretty tumultuous childhood and ended up in an AA meeting at the age of 20 and I haven't had a drink or a drug since. So that was a long time ago. But what that did is it opened up a recovery journey where once I wasn't self-medicating on drink and drugs, I knew that I had to go and have, I needed to deal with the other stuff. It's just nobody that I met understood what the other stuff was. They didn't understand what birth separation does to a person. They didn't understand what rejection from a family looks like, relinquishment. They didn't understand what the care experience is. So they didn't understand moving to lots of different places. So I think a, a distinct lack of understanding about what the care experience does to a person meant that even though I was in the right settings for help, nobody was asking the right questions and, and we weren't having the right explorations. Um, did it make me um, a worse practitioner? I probably, I'm probably more scathing of myself than any of the people would be that I worked with. Yeah. You know, because the driver for me is all has always been from a place of um, compassion. Certainly in my 20s, it was about feistiness, you know, fighting the system. I'm going to make the system better. You know, that that wonderful, youthful yeah. energy. And, and I still I've still got it. I really genuinely have still got it. So I'm really pleased about that. And I had a chat with um, Eunice, who was my. Um, uh, the only social worker whose name I remember who I've been in contact with for about 10 years and we're doing a piece for Baswa. And um, we had this conversation yesterday. She said, at 16, you were taking the local authority to the newspapers. Do you know what I mean? So I've always been that person. And I felt like that about people I was working alongside. Yeah. Um, so what would I say to my former self? I'd probably say, you know, with what was available, and with the questions that you were asked, you know, you did the best that you could. Um, and of course that, that stimulates that compassion then, I guess. But I still think that people that I was working with could have had a better version of me yeah. if the environments that I worked in and the therapeutic interventions I had were uh, more knowledgeable about yeah. about human distress you know why do why do you go into therapy you know you go into therapy you're showing up because life you can't make sense of life why can't you make sense of life oh your relationships are not they're very interesting oh you keep bringing up your mother oh this keeps her so what let's explore that what does that look like oh you're in care right okay interesting there's something going on there that we can work with you know let's be really let's get better at asking better questions actually and not be scared i think sometimes people are scared aren't they to to go there um well i'm, I'm interested about eunice why is eunice the one social worker whose name you remember what was special about her well these are the conversations that we've had publicly um, in not publicly as in on YouTube, but we've had these conversations in settings with other social workers um, because these are, and this is what the pieces that we're writing up for the 50th anniversary of Baswa. It's about the relationship because she wasn't actually a social worker for very long, but what she did was she, she was very boundaried. She was very consistent. She met me where, I was um, and it felt safe. So all the stuff that me and you 
talk about endlessly in our work again that's a beautiful example for me of what that looks like across the life course because she remember she remembers things about me mm. from 35 years ago wow and i think that speaks volumes do you think that she remembers you in that way because she got to know you really deeply and that was something she she did with the children that she worked with or do you think there was something very particular about the relationship that you and she specifically built no i don't i don't think it was specific to me and her although i definitely think i liked her mm. and i'm guessing she liked me um but i think she was only 10 years older than me. So she was 25 when I was 15, which is very young, really. Mm. Um, and she did move into adoption afterwards. But I think she was that sort of person. She's very professional, you know, so she was very mm. interested in being very boundaried and, you know, consistent and all that other stuff. And she will have been very conscientious at 25. You know, she will have wanted yeah. to get it right. That's a very young yeah. age to have so much responsibility. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it was a lot about the kind of practitioner that she really aspired to be. And yesterday when we were talking, she said that she'd had an amazing practice supervisor at 18 that really supported her on her journey. So yet again, we hear that kind of mentoring that that mm. clinical supervision, that relational approach, the stuff that really makes a difference to people that we often don't notice, we don't record, we don't talk about, but we would all have stories of those people that we've met along the way that made that difference and that shift. It's, it's incredible to hear that, how, that she would have been so young. And I, I wonder as well, like if part of it was that she was able to be so boundary. So you knew exactly, you knew how that relationship worked. You knew you could, you, you could feel maybe a little bit safer in that relationship because of those, those clear boundaries. But would it, was it not hard for you at that age when you'd been through so many maybe different social workers and obviously quite a challenging background, the idea that you liked her, wasn't that kind of scary to you? You know, that you might form this relate. I, I don't know, maybe that's me projecting what, what I might have felt in, the, in, in that. There's a danger, isn't there, when you build a relationship that what, what, what happens? Uh, and I think that's a question that me and you are probably asked a lot, mm. especially in the context of a school, for example, you know, where there are concerns about building attachment relationships that are going to come to an end. Mm. And I always say, well, we all have attachment relationships that have an end. So we need to learn how to do that. So let's learn how to do that well. Yeah. Um, but yes, I mean, that's a really good question, isn't it? Did I have a fear as the receiver of that? Mm. No, not at all. Um, I mean, I would have been suspicious of her. But I think when you've got constant different relationships because you're in a system like that um you're just really happy that you've met someone who you like and who'll listen um i mean i left her before she left me you know i went awol um uh, and it was another six months before i think the file was closed which is a beautiful terminology the lisa cherry file was closed but listen we're in murky territory of you becoming the interviewer so i'm going to move you're so good pookie so i'm going to move us into q a because we've got a few questions down here so um manda asks what are the links between girls autism and eating disorders and how can this be masked Ooh, but, so as in why do we not pick it up so okay so this is a big and deep and complicated question and um i i think it's really important to disclose from the offset here that we're still learning a lot about this it's a really young science um so first of all starting off just with girls and autism generally so autism is a diagnosis that historically um all the kind of diagnostic criteria and our understanding of it and our stereotypes about it are that this is a condition that mainly affects boys um and if we were looking for it in in girls ever we would be looking for a male presentation 
autism, whereas actually girls generally present with autism quite differently. So things like um, we might have an understanding about autism that many people who are autistic will have special interests. So things that they will obsess over. So a typical one is trains. Like there's a stereotype around that, but loads of autistic people genuinely have a really deep interest in trains, for example. Girls, um, often their special interests, those things that they will learn a huge amount about and talk about endlessly and know everything about, they tend to be much more socially acceptable. So it might be like horses or ballet or something that little girls generally are, you know, it's okay for a little girl to talk about those things endlessly. Whereas when we see a boy become obsessed with trains, then we get, mm, maybe he's autistic. You know what I mean? It, it, it instantly we begin thinking, oh, is there something here? So, so it's partly about the, the things that they might have their special interest in is one of the reasons we might kind of miss those those cues. The next really important one is that for reasons I don't understand yet, and there might be good emerging research on it, but girls are much better generally, and yeah, it's, it's a generalization because we get boys that present in this way too, but girls are much better generally at kind of mimicking what good social interaction might look like. So we're really good at passing as neurotypical. Um, so um, one of the most common and genuinely unhelpful reactions I get when I disclose that I'm autistic to people who've known me for a long time is either disbelief or uh, complete invalidation. No, you're not. You can't possibly be because X, Y, Z. What people don't know is that the um, when we are doing normal, that comes at huge cost to us personally and that there's a huge amount of anxiety, just a huge amount of thinking that comes with it. So just having a regular conversation with someone takes a massive toll because we're constantly thinking either on a conscious or a subconscious level about how to do this right and trying to second guess what everyone else is doing, working really hard to interpret their body language. And that does become obviously a somewhat subconscious process and we might not even know we're doing it, but it would be equivalent of, I don't know, if you were working in another country and maybe you knew that language quite well, but not perfectly and you'd have to just think harder and you'd be tired by the end of the day right and 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 that's 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 true for us um so we're better at masking it and um, we we get by people don't pick it up they're not looking for it so that's a general thing with girls and autism we don't we don't tend to see it and um often therefore um it's asked for a long time but there's a lot of underlying kind of anxiety um emotional dysregulation and kind of internal sort of trauma kind of going on there as a result of not really fitting in, not really feeling that people understand you, not building relationships in quite the same way that other people might. And so one of the ways that that can then sometimes play out is that we might take control of food, um, or food might take control of us, whichever way we look at it. Um, and that might be one of the ways in which we cope. Um, Self-harm also, I think, you know, relatively prevalent in autistic girls. Um, and we see um, lots of other kind of comorbid sort of mental health and emotional well-being issues. The complexity with the interaction between autism and anorexia in particular, so we would see an increase across all the eating disorders, but autism and anorexia is a particularly potent and toxic mix because when you starve the brain, actually anyone with a starved brain begins to behave somewhat autistic. So we think in a much more basic and childlike way because our, our brain is starved and you know functions begin to shut down a bit. So our thinking becomes a, a lot more black and white. We become a lot more rigid. We introduce a lot of rules around how we do things. And that's quite typical um, for people with anorexia that we'd see that. So when you combine that with an actual autistic diagnosis as well like you know you you become it, it's very it's just a very very potent mix um the good news and um what we're trying to understand more about is that where you've got that mixture it's a real sort of it's a thing that really drives and maintains the illness um, and one of the reasons i was able to get so ill was that that combination of um the autism rules and black and white thinking and the rigidity feeding into the illness but actually when you flip that it can feed into wellness as well so um you know i have I like structure. I like rules. I like routine. I will do as I'm told. Um, if I, you know, I've come to an agreement with someone or myself on that. And actually now doing as I'm told is about self care and eating nutritionally and making sure that I, uh, meet those requirements each day. So, 
you can you can flip it and use it in, in your benefit too but it's it's a really it's a really yeah i don't know if i did it just to say it. it's a it's a very complicated thing we don't fully understand it but we do know that small changes can make a big difference so if you are autistic and highly anxious and trying to deal with food someone just recognizing one of the simplest and best things anyone did for me was go hey actually food's really really stressful for you you're really anxious around food for a whole variety of different things it's not helping that we're trying to make you eat with other people so maybe we'll just have one person we'll do this in the same way every day we'll plan it ahead so you know what to expect we'll control as much as we can and do you know what in the short term we will give you medication so that actually you can numb that feeling and you can begin to build up some positive relationships and that's not just about the autism but i think it made it easier to make those decisions because yeah we understood there was so much else at play here yeah, I think you did do that question very much justice. And, and I was thinking yeah. about how many other intersections there are yeah. and uh, around ADHD as well uh, in girls, yeah. which is yeah. another area that's really difficult to get a diagnosis. And I have a daughter with undiagnosed, um, I think, ADHD um, and, and doing lots of research. And I'm not I'm not a fan of um labels or disorders um, and that hasn't helped her particularly mm. uh, that I'm that way but once I was able to embrace a label that really helped her mm. because she felt she had a language then by which to explain things yeah. not just to herself but to me yeah. Uh, which was good for our relationship. We've got another question here that looks at intersection, actually. Yeah. Um, again, notwithstanding our views about um, disorders and labels, um, it says the PEACE pathway looks at the link between anorexia and autism. Is there a project that looks at the link between autism and, again, notwithstanding any views we may have about this term, and personality disorder? Do you have any advice for adapting treatment for patients with comorbid conditions? Great question. Um, I'm not aware um, of a project of that type about autism and personality disorder, as you say. Yeah, the term has uh, a whole nother podcast there. Um, yes. But um, personality uh, is personality disorder isn't a, a particular area of expertise for me and the the peace pathway and um, I've mentioned I know about because I'm involved with it so it's a slightly awkward thing where actually my my psychiatrist um, is also on the team there and at the point at which I'd become a little bit uncomfortable and begun to disengage with treatment I was turning up as a professional to these meetings and there she went hi sorry I skipped on point anyway that's a whole nother thing <laughs> but so the reason I know about that one is because I'm personally involved with it both uh, with the kind of lived experience and and providing professional input um, but there may well be I'm not aware of anything um, and I'll certainly put it out there I'll ask my Twitter network someone will know the deeper question there about advice for adapting treatment for patients with comorbid conditions is I actually think so labels do really help and certainly for me the label of autism really helped and also I got around the same time a diagnosis of complex post-traumatic stress disorder um, which again really helped and helped me to direct my therapy and use the right evidence-based therapy to begin to really fix some very very old trauma um, and it's all been part of quite a complicated picture and so those labels did really help me they helped me understand myself they helped me explain myself to other people just like you said with your daughter but I also think, do you know what, sometimes the most helpful thing we can do is just lose all the labels and particularly where someone's got a really complicated um, kind of pathology and symptomology and just look at them as a person um, and actually just stop and ask ourselves, you know, where are they at the moment? What would help them today? What might help them next week and next month? And what's my role here? Um, and granted, labels will help us to use the best evidence-based treatment and so on and so forth. But often when we have a hammer everything's a nail and whichever expertise someone comes in with us that's what they'll see and um even when we get a label labels are messy you know they're always updating the diagnosis no, diagnostic criteria so dsm-5 sitting somewhere in the background there in the purple section lisa in the purple section i'm and, so glad um, you told me which color yeah Obs, how are you gonna find it else <laughs> so <laughs> dsm-5 so our like bible of of, of kind of uh, diagnoses essentially this this was re-released uh, dsm-5 came out after dsm-4 because they're logical like that during the time when i was writing up my phd thesis um which uh, my thesis you just write one 
thesis. So I didn't cover all my work. And I looked specifically at eating disorders because that was the department I was working with and it's how it's funded. Um, and the diagnostic criteria for eating disorders were completely revised during the time I was writing up my thesis. Um, and that was important and helpful and, and good and it moved us forward but it also made us stop and reflect on well have we been getting this wrong then have things really changed or is it just our understanding that's changed and if it can change once will it change again and so it does begin to question well how useful is a diagnosis and a label and so yeah i think sometimes looking past the labels and seeing the person is the most helpful thing that we can do if someone's complicated in particular that was a long uh, yeah. answer no yeah. great answer and um and I think what that's a thesis of itself, isn't it? During writing my thesis, mm -hmm. you know, these labels got rewritten. But I, I'm just going to finish on one question. I don't think, did I say I was going to finish on one question before? But um, what Nicola has asked is, so many children internalise that sense of difference where there is no diagnosis. How do we ensure children with undiagnosed needs are met in schools? And I think that is a fantastic question because actually the reality is that for lots of those children their needs will not be met in school and in my experience then they will leave school and their needs will not be met in a college either um, and the spiral that happens during that transition into adulthood is one I have lived with and observed and it is very painful um, as a on a personal level uh, yeah very 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 difficult yeah i'm sorry it sounds it does yeah that's it's really challenging although it's it sounds like you're headed in a more positive direction now which is oh yeah i mean absolutely we are in a much 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 better place and there's lots of if i'd known then what i know now and actually getting any kind of diagnosis for girls which you've talked about um six plus years ago um would just not have happened so those needs were very unmet through school. Um, and the biggest outcome of that was um, excruciating anxiety mm. um, and very, very low self-esteem. Uh, but that's not the answer that we want to finish on because Nicola <laughs> has asked us a question. So we want to say, okay, so we know that. So we what is it that. that we can do about that? How do we support professionals yeah. better? And actually that, that question dives right into the very core of why I do what I do every day. Um, so too. thank you for planting that question. <laughs> um, so what I do every day is about recognizing that the system is, is, is broken. Uh, the system is, there's more need than there is capacity and there's all sorts of things that are wrong with it. Um, but actually, we are surrounded in our lives every day as a child by adults who really give a damn about us. Um, and they have historically been really disempowered from helping because we've been told for years that these issues are the realms of experts and specialists and you should not have these conversations unless you've had x years of training um, and then you know the child will maybe maybe get a diagnosis and get some support from a highly specialized person for like an hour a week if they're really lucky maybe for as many as 12 weeks okay there's a lot of other hours in the week there's a lot of other time in their life um, and the rest of us are there trying desperately to pick up the pieces so what i do is I try to help people to recognize where a child might be struggling for whatever reason. And I do support people in understanding labels and responding to specific needs, but actually it's more about seeing children as little humans um, and recognizing their strengths as well as their challenges and recognizing our strengths as well as our challenges and seeing where those two meet and giving people really simple ideas informed and influenced and inspired by what works well in clinical practice what the science and the research tells us works but mostly inspired by what we see working every day and what's actually practical to do and then when we get that right and it's you know it's the work of a lifetime but i'm i'm reaching as many people as i can when we get that right actually we find that parents teaching assistants school nurses teach everybody can do this if you are someone who can love um if and be loved you know build that relationship um if you are someone who can listen and we can all learn to be better listeners but you know we've all got two ears at the end of the day and and we've all got some skill there that can be developed and um and if you're willing to kind of i don't know learn and laugh with a the child then you can make a huge difference 
Um, and I and I think it's as simple and as complicated as that. So my work, um, albeit there's loads of different things that I do, the number one gift I'm ever able to give to people is confidence to do what they maybe felt in their heart or that their experience showed them maybe work but they they didn't they weren't didn't have the confidence to do it and now maybe they go tomorrow and they might have some more ideas we might have built their skills up a little bit but mainly they do what they were doing and they do it knowing that it's going to make a difference um, and having confidence to do so and and that's what it's all about Pookie and that's I think that's where our paths really meet when we can show the power of those relationships demonstrate what a difference we can make um, when we have those meaningful opportunities to meet people where they're at. Pookie, yeah. you've been amazing. Thank you so much. We could have done this for hours, but I really appreciate <laughs> your time. And thank you so much for coming today. No, thanks for having me. It's been a, a, a real pleasure. And I'd love to, I, I just want to ask you more questions, uh, really. I've, I've got so <laughs> many questions. Um, but um, no, and, 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 you know, on a, on a really serious note, um, thank you so much for all that you're doing for the sector, because there are lots of people out there, um, but not many people who are kind of impacting in such a practical, relational, down to earth way. And I think, I, I think you need to be careful to look after yourself because you must be taking on a lot right now. It's a really challenging time. Um, but you are making so much more difference than I think you could ever know because you're just touching yeah, so many lives in the work you're doing. So thank you. Pookie, now I'm going to cry. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> <I'm gonna, laughs> to leave on that note. Big love to you. Yeah. Big love. And to you too. And thanks everyone for, for coming along.